Hey everybody, welcome to episode 102 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. I have been struggling to record this intro for a couple of days now. Usually it's pretty easy to just sit down and record these. And it hasn't been difficult because we don't have a good show ahead of us. We've got Emily McCarthy. She's a great person. She's doing great things. But it is a messed up United States out there. And if you are not upset or furious right now, I I can't imagine you're paying attention. I try to leave politics out of this show. I try not to get into these discussions. I like to think that even though this show can only have the smallest impact on everything, that it's it's sincerely really about bringing people together and helping people find common interest and helping unite everybody. And this country is so divided and it is so infuriating and I've just been so upset and just shaking with anger that it has been hard to focus on other things and get this intro recorded and I thought and thought about it and I want to apologize to Emily ahead of time for including this in her episode. This should focus on her, but I also feel like it would be so irresponsible to not comment on what's going on around us. I just want to encourage all of you. I don't want to get into politics right now. I don't want to talk about all of the things I could talk about and all of the things that are infuriating, but I want to encourage all of you just please stop and listen to each other and think for one second about the experience of a person that is different from you and has had a life different than you can imagine and just try and try for the sake of everyone to think about that for a second and consider how people must feel right now after decades and decades of this. Think about that and then think about how to heal people and help people and stop arguing with each other and try to move forward because we aren't going to last much longer if we just keep dividing ourselves and keep fighting each other like this. So once again, I apologize to Emily but I just had to get this off my chest. And if people are going to listen to this, I just want them to take a moment to think about that. And so I'm really going to try now to segue us into our show because we do have a great show today. And oddly enough, some of the topics that are going on right now get discussed a bit in this episode. But we do have a really good show. It's with Emily McCarthy. She is a runner. She's former CIA. She was an overseas volunteer. And she's the head of the women's division at Go Ruck. And if you haven't heard of them, they're a group that's composed of veterans and civilians. And they come together and they get active together and they build communities together. And if there's ever been a time that we need that, we need it right now. So I'm not going to make you listen to me rant anymore, and I hope everybody's still interested in listening to this episode. Emily and I spoke over Skype a few months ago, and we talked about all kinds of things, all sorts of stuff from Go Ruck itself, to her international experiences, to her life in the CIA, to class disparities across the world, and, and, and even lighter-hearted, enjoyable fare like Red Rover. Come with me now, and let's go talk to Emily McCarthy. My name is Emily McCarthy. I'm born and raised in Florida, and that's where I live now. And that's where my husband and I have moved our headquarters uh, for the past several years for GORUCK. GORUCK is something that we dreamed up together when I was posted to West Africa when I was working for the CIA. You know, being on this podcast is, is a real treat. We, we spend a lot of time outdoors, and sometimes it's in a conventional way, and, and I think other ways is not as conventional. I think a lot of people have forgotten what it's like to be outdoors and when they live in a city and get older and entrenched in their careers and their ways. So Jason and I think a lot about what it means to be outdoors. And with Go Ruck, we've been working with our communities and our friends over the last decade to kind of bring that conversation back about what it means to be a community and to spend more time with each other outside. And as I'm sure you've probably caught on by now, if you didn't already know, a large portion of this podcast and a large reason it exists is just that concept of getting people 
back in nature because one, it's just, I think it's beneficial to people, but I also think it opens up a better part of themselves. It's the world we have to exist in. So we need to, we need to be a part of it as opposed to being separate from it and maybe even scared of it. So you mentioned that you grew up in Florida where you live now. You're in Jacksonville now, right? Yeah. Did you grow up in Jacksonville or did you grow up elsewhere in Florida? No, I, I grew up in Jacksonville. So what did your experience as a child look like? Were you a child that spent a lot of time in nature or are you a person that came to it later in life? I spent a lot of time in nature growing up. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a mortgage loan officer. You know, right in middle class, the, the backyard was big. It seemed really big back then. So I grew up in that time that, you know, a lot of us that are in our 40s and maybe 50s can relate to where we built forts, we played sandlot baseball, went around the neighborhood with our friends and the type of existence where you got home and you immediately changed your clothes and went outside. Or or like in my case, a few times I didn't change my clothes and I ripped up my nice jeans and my mom got really pissed at me. So... Yeah, I mean, that was what it was. And of course, you know, you live in Florida, you get you get good weather almost year round. I mean, I think it snowed twice in my life growing up. So we have a really short winter, lots of time on the beach, lots of national parks. So yes, I, I spent a lot of time outside and it wasn't all about like, oh, we're taking this big trip, you know, we're gearing up and we're gonna do these things. It was really pretty simple simple living where you you just walk out your back door or sometimes your front door. We would go to the beach every weekend. I tell people now I I lived over the ditch, which is kind of a big divide between the beaches and the town here in Jacksonville. Back then, going from over the ditch in town to the beach was like a 10 or 15 minute drive. Now there's more lights and more traffic, more congestion, more homes, more people. So it takes a little bit longer. It's almost like twice that, about 30 minutes. We would go to the beach a lot, and it was simple. It was just like play in the sand, go in the water. Didn't have to bring a lot of equipment and things like that. So nothing wrong with camping and getting into the outdoors. I think that's awesome. You know, I was listening to like your first episode is that sometimes that can be seem like a barrier, right? Like it's like feels elitist, like golf or tennis or snow skiing. It doesn't really have to be that way. And I think something that GORUCK has really opened you know, our eyes too, and a lot of other people's eyes is, is like democratization of the outdoors. It's for everyone in a lot of different ways. There's so. an interesting thing with people's access to nature. So you might know I grew up in Louisiana and I grew up in like a low income family. And so the part of the reason we went camping is because it was affordable. Otherwise, we couldn't afford to go places. And we were often camping in the panhandle of Florida. <laughs> so there's this interesting divide where there's to a certain degree, nature is available to higher income people, but then also to low income out of necessity. And then there's this weird world in between all of this where it's it's a thing that's still kind of separated from a lot of people. And I feel like some of these things have kind of developed over my lifetime. And I do think it's really important to bring people from all incomes back to it. And it's like you were saying, it's kind of the same thing to me growing up. You didn't think like, oh, we're going to go into nature this weekend or we're going to go into the outdoors. It's just, oh, we're going to go somewhere, which means we're going to camp. And that's just going to be a natural part of it. And And I do think it's important to get people back to that idea that it's not this weird special thing you do. It's just part of your life and something you do all the time. And it sounds like that was how you grew up also. Did that continue Mm -hmm. to be the case as you aged or did you go through these phases where you kind of broke away from it and then chased career paths or whatever and then found your way back to it later? Or has it been a constant throughout your life? I will love to answer this question. And I I loved hearing that about you because it, it really resonated with me. And I think it's something that needs to be explored. And I'm really glad that there's a podcast that, you know, you're running that is asking these questions. I, I mean it. It's it's really important because it, it like you said, it's like the poor, you know, have to have access to it because this is their reality, right? And then the rich, it's like they do it in other ways that can be inaccessible. But what about everybody in the middle, which is the most people, right? This is this is the majority that we're talking about. I've seen it on on all levels. I think um, I'll give you an example. And then I'll get back to the question about sort of over the course of my life, how has the outdoors played a part in that? But something that really just 
woke me up was I was posted to West Africa. It's kind of a lonely existence sometimes, you know, <laughs> you're out there you're, and everyone's like, yay, you're there. We're never going to visit, you know, and <laughs> it wasn't a garden spot for sure. I went on a lot of runs on my own at first when I first got there and I didn't really know any, many people. And I would go for a run and I'd see these African women mostly, but men as well, with, you know, heavy pots full of mangoes or pineapples or, you know, the cassava roots on their head. They were walking many miles. I mean, double digit, digit miles from their village to the city to sell these at like an outdoor farmer's market. And I just remember the look I would get from these people who are working so hard. And here I am, I'm just like trying to get out of the office to burn some calories. And I just felt like, like, this is like almost a crime. Like, why would you go out and purposely just run if the lion's not chasing you or you don't have, you know, somewhere to be, right? And it really kind of made me question a lot of things. And, and it still does to this day, because I feel like, like what you're talking about, you know, you, you talk to someone who's coming up through poverty and they get a job that's sitting down in an office with air condition, they're, they're excited about that. It's one of those things over time and evolution, you and I, if you put us in, you know, a box and tell us to sit here all day in the air condition, we're going to be bored and our bodies are going to feel terrible and we're going to start to feel terrible. So it really is like, where's the right balance? How do we be comfortable and safe and keep our children comfortable and safe and healthy? It's not one or the other, right? <laughs> it's not walk you know, 50 miles a day until you drop, right? Because this is your livelihood. That's not the goal. Neither is to sit in, you know, a cubicle or sit in your chair for 12 hours a day and go to the gym for 45 and then drive home and then lie down in your bed. So somewhere in the middle, we have to think about this. We have to almost course correct on what it means to be healthy and in tune with nature. And I, I believe that getting outside is the best solution to this problem because of that it is accessible to everyone. You can do it in so many different ways. It's like really just pick, pick your pleasure. You can rock, you can hike, you can run, you can walk, you can go fishing. You know, there's so many ways to connect with the outdoors and to do so in a way that's really good all around. To get back to your question, you know, I grew up, this kid that spent a lot of time outdoors, that was great. This is when school still had like, you know, longer recess times. You know, let's run around the fence every day. I always loved running. So I got into track and field and then cross country uh, later in high school and then ended up running in college. And so I went to DC at Georgetown and I felt like I knew that city. I knew every alleyway, every place you could stop to pee, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and that to me, I felt so much more in tune with my body than I ever had at that time. And I was doing it in a way with a group of girls and sometimes the guys team and it became my social network. Georgetown didn't have Greek life. I didn't care at the time, but it, the, the track team became sort of that sisterhood. And we were bonded by the hard workouts we had to do together, you know, the elements that we had to go out in. And all that time we spent running around the city, talking with each other. And it's, it's funny to think like we were in a city, but we were still outdoors. So you don't have to be in the mountains or in a beautiful beach, or you know, you don't have to be in the jungle to be outside. And that's that's a lot of what Gora kind of fell into by accident. It's like, oh, this is what you got. Let's let's use that. Your city is still full of outdoor experiences. Yeah, it's really a thing about being active to a certain degree more so. For instance, like I climb and climbing is a huge thing now throughout the country, but yeah. so much of it is indoors. It's great and we can get the people that are climbing indoors to also go outdoors, but also just the fact that they're active and socializing and have found this active pursuit to socialize around is, is beneficial enough. But yeah, we were going to talk also about like your experience, because for me, I did kind of get away from it. I grew up playing in the woods, woods surrounded my neighborhood. And then as I got older and you start getting into your teen years and all, it, it very much becomes about socializing, right? And finding right. partners and things like that. And I kind of got away from it, moved to Los Angeles and then found my way back to it and then found a whole new group of friends and a whole new 
set of pursuits in life. We're going to talk about whether that was also your experience or if Mm -hmm. you, unlike me, were able to keep it a balanced life throughout. College, I did a lot of running. I I mean, we were running 90, 100 miles hours a week. So, and they were all outdoors. There was, there was not an indoor track facility. So a lot of outdoor time. So after graduating, you know, I kept running and, and kept staying outside, just not to that intensity. If it was pouring down rain, I'd say like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to wait to stop, <laughs> you know, before I just have to go. Definitely made it a little bit more normalized. Shortly after I graduated, my dad passed away suddenly and being outside was therapy you know, getting that stress relief and kind of dealing with all the emotions I was going through gave me that space. So I kept it up for a long time. I even coached at my high school um, when I moved back home for a while. After that, I ended up doing a volunteer opportunity in South America. I lived in an intentional community with with seven other Americans. So we spent a lot of time outdoors as well, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, not be on everybody's, you know, in everyone's space all the time. So I never really took a break. It just changed, you know, the environment changed and the way I could spend. Cause I, being in Ecuador, I couldn't run as far. It, it wasn't just, you know, I did go out and venture out and I got the group to go. It was a lot of pollution. It was, you'd have to avoid certain areas. It wasn't like, oh, I, I love this run. It was just like, let's do it. But we found other ways to spend it outside, you know, playing with kids, playing soccer, adapting to that community. And then when I came home, you know, from that year abroad, that's when I started, you know, looking at the next step and looking towards working at the government. I will say, I had a lot of great um, experiences with the agency and I really loved a lot of the training they give, but I was disappointed by the lack of time outdoors and sort of the physical testing. You know, you see these movies and again, I didn't grow up wanting to be James Bond. (laughs) I, I, I never did, which is a whole nother story, but I ended up falling into that role somehow. And then of course, then once you're on that path, you know, you're getting to next level, you know, okay, you've reached, you've passed this part of the process. Let's move on. I started, you know, reading more watching more movies and I was actually like, wow, I'm really excited to see what kind of boot camp type, you know, skills we're gonna learn. That was few and far between and I was disappointed. I I was. Like we had this one after you after you graduate, there's a lot of sitting down writing. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of going to dinners and eating. And you know, it's just like not a lot of like, hey, let's let's go out and chase the bad guy or, you know, run around. You know, it's it's a lot of sitting. So that drove me crazy. Again, with some of my other friends who were in the training, we we sought we sought out ways to do. I mean, some of them taught me some Krav Maga. You know, we would go on runs where the training was based. So we made it happen, but it was like in the you know the slivers of time we had left. The best part was you know you get to do this kind of cool like spy school training once you graduate and. They did this land navigation course, and I loved it. It was my favorite part. And it's basically drop you out in the woods, give you a compass and a map, and you have to basically do like what special forces soldiers do in their um, selection course is the star course, where you're given five points, you have to go to them, given the lat long, and you have to, you know, hike to them, you know, see the instructor, they check you in, you go to the next one. I was just thrilled. At one point, I heard that this one colleague, I won't mention who, she was so nervous about getting outside that she stopped drinking water like a few days prior. That's and she passed decision. out in the woods. She passed out in the woods because she didn't, she was afraid of having to pee in the woods. To myself, I was like, you know what, you should just be DQ'd from, from this training course, <laughs> right? We, for whatever it's worth, it's, you can still be James Bond, not have to pee in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know that James Bond has ever peed in the woods in any of his movies. He hasn't, but I'd like to think that the James Bond I want to see, maybe it's not even a man. Maybe it's a woman. Maybe she's going to pee in the woods, you know? But anyway, yeah. So that was my favorite part of the whole training. I liked it. I did well. And and it was fun for me. But again, I told you, you go, you get to Africa again. it took me a little while to find my group. Like you said, you had to find new friends. I think exploring outdoors and finding people who are being outdoors is really important. And for West Africa, what was really great was for me was the Hash group. I don't know if you've heard of the Hash Hound Harriers. No, yep. tell us it's, more. I mean, it is so cool. So basically, 
It started somewhere in Southeast Asia, expats, I believe they were British, you know, probably when the Brits were taking over the world. The expats would just get together and they would call themselves the Hashound Harriers, which was a drinking group with a running problem, was their tagline. I've heard that, and I don't know if mm-hmm. it was in reference to them or if somebody else is using that same slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, they're everywhere. It's pretty old school, right? So they haven't really updated with the times, you know, on social media. I went to their website once, and it was it was a little like, whoa, <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're trying to figure some things out still, but the tradition is still alive and well in a lot of these far corners of the earth where expats and locals will get together. And in Africa, it meant we'd go to these like rubber plantations, rubber tree plantations and banana plantations, a little bit outside of the city. So pollution's less, danger's less. Someone would mark a trail with some flour There's some false trails that you can go on. And the point is to stick together and have fun and kind of lope around. And sometimes it would be 8, 10, 12 miles long, depending on how much you got lost. And then you meet at the end and drink beers. And everyone's got a nickname if you come long enough. It's really fun and a really great way to create some entertainment when you're, you know, in a place that doesn't have a lot. (laughs) And you're outdoors and you get to see a country in a whole different light. So Jason came and did some of those with me when I was posted. And I think actually indirectly it influenced sort of the GORUCK, besides the military doing similar things, which is his side of the story. The GORUCK events kind of became this thing. You do these hard things outside with people and then you drink beers afterwards. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been really funny to see how it's it's grown over the years and how it's it's even evolved. We have ruck clubs all over the world now. Kind of think about it like a a running club. We get together and put weight in our backpacks and and go for a walk together. And I run my own here in town, separate from the GORUCK headquarters one, because I realized that it just wasn't fitting my lifestyle as a mom of young kids. Actually, we have 72 members, (laughs) not all active, but you know, that basically come and go. But there's a core group of us, about 20 strong, We get together most weekends and go for a ruck with our kids. It's one of those things, it doesn't cost anything. It's just show up at this park. And sometimes the kids ruck, sometimes they they ride their scooters, sometimes they run, sometimes that they're really little, they ride in their strollers. It's less about a competition or tracking our miles as it is getting our kids outdoors and doing it together. It really helps when, you know, one kid's having a hard time, they, they tend to just fall in line better when there's other kids. So this last Sunday, for example, it was uh, one of our youngest members turning two. The mom said, can I just do her birthday party as the ruck? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I, to myself, I thought, why didn't I do something like that when my kids were <laughs> little? Putting on a party for them and their little two-year-old friends was a disaster. <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's their cranky as they're inside and they're giving them sugar and they're, you know, you don't want them to destroy things, but they're going to anyway. She basically took the ruck over. It was like a little birthday takeover and the kids had so much fun. It wasn't about the presents. It was about her riding her new scooter and, you know, us going to get our smoothie halfway point and then rucking back and stopping in a park at the end to play. I really think at a really basic level, that's what it's about. Yeah, and I definitely want to get in-depth about Go Rucks shortly, but mm-hmm. I think I'd be doing everyone a disservice if if we <laughs> didn't talk about this really quickly. You've mentioned living in South America, living in Africa, yeah. and also being in the CIA. Right. <laughs> so I don't want to gloss Casual. past those. Let's talk about how, how and why you ended up living in other countries and then... After that, we definitely have to talk about what it's like being in the CIA. Sure. So yeah, what brought you to Africa and what brought you to South America? You started at the beginning with these sort of things. My mom was a language teacher. She fell in love with France when she was younger. So I grew up, you know, having a lot of exchange students in our house, exposed to a lot of, you know, things that middle-class American girl wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to. We did a lot of outdoor stuff, but we did a lot of cultural stuff, you know, like going to museums and festivals all around the state. Anything you could drive to and and like you said you know even some camping and and visiting family you know we didn't ever go to a hotel just for the heck of it it was like you go visit somebody you know you go see their way of life gosh that reminds me I hadn't thought 
talked about this in a long time, but we went to West Virginia once to visit my aunt, my mom's sister, who was there doing a residency for medical school. That was like one of my best outdoor experiences I ever had as a kid. We were in the middle of nowhere. It was like a farm, but not in the mountains. And then I remember, you know, it was first time I ever shot a rifle and it was like a Welch's grape can that I had to shoot. And then we went on this hike and I found this deer skull and I just thought it was the neatest thing. I found out later like only like two years ago that my uncle had planted that for me to find. <laughs> That's a good uncle. <laughs> but I didn't know that until then. And I just thought, I'm such an explorer. Look at me. <laughs> so like, think about that. As parents, the little white lie in there, but it, it kind of set me on a trajectory of like, I'm an explorer. I'm not afraid to try new things. Because of that, after I graduated college, I wanted to volunteer, I wanted to live abroad. I couldn't like do a study abroad experience when I was in college because of being on the track team. Just would be missing out a whole season in training. I felt like I missed out a little bit on that, but my rationalization was like, you can always go live abroad. You can't, you know, run on a division one team ever again after this. So let's just stick with this for now. At the time it was hard because I had all these friends going to live in their spring break lives, you know, and that would seem pretty awesome adventures and good for them. But, you know, I made up for it, I think. I applied for a position as a volunteer with Catholic Relief Services. It was the best, one of the best years of my life. I learned so much. It was a hard time for me. It was, you know, right after my dad had passed away. It was right after 9-11. Just things, you know, as a young 20-something, I just felt a little unhinged. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And that really gave me some direction and, and some purpose. I think it's really good to have purpose, right? You know, especially when you're younger and you're you're wondering how how you contribute to society and like, do you even matter? Going to do something like that, serving others, it, you know, even if that's a complicated sort of subject of what is service and, you know, what does it mean to give to someone and who really benefits from all that? There are all those things that you can get philosophical on. At the end of the day, it, it really, as a young 20-something, it, it, it gave me a purpose in life. It, it like let me know that the world is bigger than just me, and yet I do matter. So it was like the best of both, right? You know, like be humble, but still, you know, you need to do things that are going to fill you up as well. South America was something I'd, I'd wanted to do. It was a great thing. My only regret is that I didn't apply to the Peace Corps because I thought two years at that time would be too too long to defer student loans, too long to be out of the workforce. And I tell young college graduates now, it's like, you can have that time. Just take it. If I could change something, maybe, and I'm not a big fan on changing things, but hypothetically, <laughs> if I were changing something in my past, I do wish I just would have been aware that the Peace Corps was an right. option because I, I yes. think I would would have loved to have participated in that. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like you could say that about a lot of things. The Peace Corps, the, the volunteer program I did, the military, Teach for America. There's all these opportunities that I feel like it's almost like a best kept secret. People that know about them, they, they tell people about them. And it's like, there's not a lot of cross-pollinization or something. I don't know. And I, I want to tell, I want to talk about this more for people because it. I just got lucky that I was looking for something unconventional after college and a good friend of mine the track team he was already unconventional you know he was already like on track with this and I just said I'm gonna follow you like let's let's figure out where to go and and you know we started this club weed investment bankers for breakfast club <laughs> it was just kind of a joke you know but we basically were trying to do what you're talking about is like give people exposure like what's the alternative to going working on Wall Street after you graduate or going to join the rat race here are some alternatives. For example, this this wonderful girl that I know who babysits my kids, she was like having this, I don't know what to do after college kind of talk with me the other day. And I said, why don't you look at the Peace Corps? Why don't you look at something like that? She's applied and she's waiting to find out next month if she's going to go. And we're really excited. And I said, you know what, even if that doesn't work out, like there's other places, right? Now she's already, her mind's open to that. I've got to imagine that the experiences you get from something like that are so much more valuable than you even could imagine from the beginning. Just what you learn about humanity, what you learn about yourself. Yeah, it's the full package. I remember coming back from Ecuador, going to job interviews. And at this time I, I wasn't, I hadn't applied to the government yet. I was 
just applying to be a teacher and, you know, some other positions around town. I remember going to these interviews and people being fascinated. Tell me more about that experience. Like, tell you know, mm-hmm. I got all the job offers, <laughs> you know, and that's because I did something different. I wasn't just saying I worked at this retail store and now I'm going to work at this new retail store. No saying against that, you know, people need to do what they need to do. But what's interesting is that I didn't have money. I was a poor college kid and I basically deferred 120K in student loans <laughs> and said, I'm just going to do what I need to do right now. I need to go try something fun and new. And it wasn't, it wasn't reckless. You know, my, my family supported me. I was with a group of people. You know, it wasn't like I was like, hey, fund me. It came with its own <laughs> stipend, you know. I came home and I had a lot of loans and that was that was a lot to deal with. But I got the job with the government. They had this great student re- loan repayment program. I will max out my payments if you match. And, you know, before I turned 30, the student loans were gone. And that was really great. And I think it's because I got lucky in a lot of ways. I'm not going to deny that. But at the same time, it was because I decided to take a gamble on myself, right? Yeah, to a certain degree, like there's just dumb luck. But then to a certain degree, there is the concept of making your luck, right? Which if you take the right sort of chances, the likelihood of luck is better. Exactly. Instead of like letting someone else or something else control your destiny, you control it. I could still be paying off my loans if I hadn't have found that, you know, that job in the the student loan repayment program. But I often think that because I deferred those loans and had those experiences, that's what made me a more attractive candidate. And I think that's probably very you know, likely. Someone who's willing to do that. Again, yeah. So that that was exciting. You know, I was a little apprehensive to join the government. You know, I'd just been doing like social work in Latin America. I taught a PE class to about 300 Ecuadorian children at this communist school for, it's called Oswaldo Yasemin, which is a famous communist artist in Ecuador. A lot of anti-CIA propaganda (laughs) in that country from that artist. Um, So I felt a little weird about that sometimes, but at the same time, you know, So it was myself and my best friend down there, um, Mary, we would go to the school with, you know, it was just a, it was just crazy, you know, it was just a rundown school, no air conditioned, you know, open air, just like what you would imagine, just dirt floors. And they wanted us to teach them PE. The first few weeks, it was a disaster because we didn't know much Spanish. They didn't respect us. It was just a free for all. I remember taking a two by four out of some kid's hand, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> like, you know, you know, all these things. But at the end of the year, and this is something just to be said for like keeping at it, not giving up is that, you know, we had hard days and it was outside, it was outside in the heat, you know, wearing these uniforms. We had to wear long pants and you know, cotton shirts. And we would just come back every day and say, how can we do this better? And by the end, it was amazing. The transformation, we had these whistles and we had them in lines. We basically ran like a boot camp. You know, we had those little kids doing push-ups and playing Red Rover and had to give it some time. But we basically brought a lot of like, you know, American style PE games and fun things to their, their school, which was, you know, lacking in some some discipline and order just from lack of resources, right? Not Not from, you know, anything the teachers weren't doing. They were just trying to do their best. It was a really great experience to, to see that. And, you know, we passed, passed along the torch to the next volunteers that came. And eventually, you know, the goal is that you find a local that wants to take the reins and get paid for that as a job. So that was kind of the, the goal of that program was to always do what you can while you're there and then hopefully create something sustainable for when you leave. I just want to point out, you mentioned Red Rover, and I just think Red Rover is an <laughs> underappreciated game. And I'm glad that you could bring it to other countries so that they can appreciate Red Rover, because I think more people need to appreciate Red Rover. You know, I don't think it's allowed in many schools these days. I've wondered if that is the case, because there's a bit of a violence to it. <laughs> Much like dodgeball, but that's also (laughs) partly why I think I liked them so much as a kid. There's a lot of justice to them, too, though. Have you ever seen that? I don't know if it's a meme or some Twitter quote. Don't you wish those days when you could just play Red Rover and clothesline that kid that was (laughs) making everybody mad? (laughs) You know what I mean, though? It's like the the community would fix things, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right? Like, if you let kids, and I'm on this, like, 
deep dive on parenting right now because of my three-year-old. He's been diagnosed as sensory seeking, which basically means he needs to be outside all the time, uh-huh. <laughs> which is which is great for us because we like that. But the funny thing about parenting, it's like a Jedi mind trick. It's like the less you do, the better it is. And I think that goes for teachers and mentors. It's like, you need to be there. You need to guide. The kids want to play Red Rover. You probably should let them. (laughs) Who doesn't want to play Red Rover? The Ecuadorian kids loved it. They begged us to play it. It was no less violent there than it was when we were growing up. You would see the the little, the the smaller kids that were a little weaker, that they would break the, the chain for them. But the kids that kind of needed to be taken out or fall to the ground a little bit. Everyone would just, you know, double up and try to make sure they wouldn't break it. It's a really interesting, you know, game when you think about it from a societal perspective. There's this weird social aspect to it outside of just people running into each other's arms to try to break their arms apart. There's a lot more to it. So one of the things I want to shift to now is the CIA. So like you were saying, it's, it's not like being James Bond. So tell people what you did for the CIA yeah. and what your life was sincerely like while you did that. I'm not going to say it's not any of it is like James Bond, but <laughs> <laughs> but the physical part. I do think there are parts of that business that do do a lot of kinetic and physical things and good for them. Not coming from a military background, being a smaller woman, I was you know not necessarily put in that category, but... I wanted to be, I wanted there to be like a fitness test involved. And I think there used to be one over the years. They take things out for whatever reason. But I was the like accidental case officer of sorts. I ended up applying to be some, you know, a a language teacher because I French major. And then I just spent this time in Ecuador and had gained some fluency. And I thought, well, my language skills will be helpful. That'd be cool. You know, there's a lot of different jobs in the CIA. I didn't know which one I was going to be, but post 9-11, there was a big push for people. And I always laughed because the strategic languages were none of the ones that I had. (laughs) Arabic, Chinese, Russian, Farsi, Urdu. And here I am coming in with my French and Spanish. (laughs) I felt a little like, oh man, this is, I'm not very cool (laughs) when I first came in, but you got to have to just be you, right? And the good thing about me was that I had had years of French and now Spanish, and I could test out of them, and I got a bonus, which was nice. <laughs> went through, went to that student loans <laughs> debt I had. So at the time they had where you could test and earn a language bonus, probably still do to a certain extent today. Because of that, I was able, once we graduated from our training, I was able to go out into the field immediately, which was awesome. It was like one of the first people in my class to go, be given a, an assignment. It was really cool. It was like, go find these, these Sudanese rebels and ask them why they left the Darfur peace agreement. And I was like, wow, this is legit. So that was, that was my first sort of assignment. It was awesome. Something that I really liked about it is that I, I did a lot of research beforehand, but I talked to a lot of people in, in the building that had been to those places. Even people that were like, you know, kind of outside of the, you know, the group that I was in, the directorate of operations. So I would talk to the, basically the analyst. Like most government things, there's a lot of like, well, that's them and this is us. You know, even post 9-11 when there's a lot of talk about connecting dots, it's easier said than done. But I took it very literally. I'm like, I'm going to go connect that dot, (laughs) you know? So I talked to people and they gave me lots of great information. And basically, you know, you go and you talk to people and you get them to trust you. It's a lot of relationship building. It's about being able to assess people and read them and, and then accurately like transmit that. Do it over and over again. Keep pushing it forward. That was a really cool first assignment for like a young 20 something. Something I do say to a lot of people about working in the government, it's you receive a lot of responsibility early on. You know, you're kind of operating alone. You're given a lot of responsibility, a lot of trust. It's a cool job from that perspective. And I loved the work that I did in Africa. I think, you know, Africa is someplace I really want to go back to one day. Not to just explore more of the, you know, the beautiful scenery there, but the work that can be done and the people, it's a real depth to it. You don't even realize until you're in it and you're like, wow, I could keep working on this problem for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just there's so many different facets to it. So I miss that. 
did I answer your question about day in a life or what you do? I mean, I was a political officer. And so I did a lot of, you know, political kind of work on the ground in a lot of countries there. I'm assessing kind of the eternal situation. When I was in Cote d'Ivoire, I helped with the election and identification process. I mean, we're talking about people that just don't have papers. Large groups of people that are marginalized and not recognized by their own governments. Finding out ways to work with NGOs and, and other, you know, the existing government and, and other people on the ground there. They're, what I was saying is so cool about Africa is just everybody's there. All the big players, all the big NGOs. There's just a lot to be done and you can do it in a way that your hands aren't really tied because it is where it is. You can kind of, you're free to move around more and talk. There's not a lot of hierarchy, you know, like you don't, it's not like, oh, you can't talk to that person because... You know, they're way up, they're inaccessible. No, you have access. I bet that your experiences in Africa and South America before you worked for the CIA were particularly helpful for then your career later on. And and I doubt that when you went over there, you thought, oh, I'm going to go to these other countries and and volunteer to a certain degree. And this is somehow going to be really helpful to work for the CIA later. I had no idea. No, I had no idea. In fact, it was like almost an about face of sorts. You know, a lot of people who end up starting down the path of volunteering. And basically what I was doing was social work. I ran an after school program. I taught English to women, ran PE programs, you know, all this sort of stuff living in this kind of marginalized community. I had no idea that it would be useful later on, but you know, in the interview process for the agency, it came up a lot. Kind of like I said for the job interviews, you know, post end like people were really interested. Well, tell me what you did. How did you get to know these people? How did you get access to their homes? Tell me about these reports you wrote. This friend of mine, he kind of, again, kind of paved the way in some ways. But when we were handing off, he said, you know, when you get to know one of the kids in our after school program, try to go follow them home and just get to know a little bit more about their life. I did this. I did this with like 80 kids. I keep like a file on them because kind of how I would handle them and the after school program depended a lot about what I observed in their homes. You know, were they living 10 people to a home? Did they not get enough to eat there? Should I make sure they get double the ration of um, this colada mix we made with lots of vitamins and we'd hand out bananas every day? And sometimes, you know, you'd be like, no, only one banana per kid. But you know, then you know that this kid's not going to get anything when they get home. You manage to find another way to give them one. And, you know, it's not about being fair. It's about not everybody starting from the same playing field. So that kind of information and kind of looking behind the scenes did. It really translated in a way that I didn't expect it to overseas. And something that I did, not because it was part of my job, but because it was something I wanted to do as a person. And it also connected me with some of my State Department colleagues was that I would go to an orphanage uh, almost on a weekly basis in Africa. And we would just play with the kids there or hold the babies or, you know, go to this place that was hard and, and it was difficult to go to. But you don't do it because you want people to, you know, respect you. You do it because you want to do the right thing. But in the end, it opens people's hearts and minds to you later on. If you come to them and say, hey, I have a question. Can you tell me more about this? They look at you in a different light. She's the woman that goes to the orphanage every weekend, right? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, again, it wasn't like a badge. And I didn't do it from a manipulative standpoint. It's, I, I had a background in doing this already. I wanted to kind of continue to do that. But it, it does tell people who you are. And it does, not you know, allow them to trust you. Mm-hmm. Tell us how these life experiences eventually lead into GORUCK. But before that, go ahead and explain to people what GORUCK is and what specifically <laughs> rucking is, because some people aren't familiar with that term. Right. You know, I'm glad you stopped me on that because we live and breathe it all the time. So we're like, oh, whoa, sorry. There are people are like, ruck what? Are you calling me a name? <laughs> Funny story. We have these rucket shirts, you know, and um, I wore it into my kid's school the other day. And the, the woman at the front desk was giving me a weird look. <laughs> And she was like, I could not wear that shirt. And I was like, what do you mean? It's just wreck it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I never thought about it from that standpoint. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so thanks for um, asking me to explain. So rucking is something that I learned through Jason because he was in the Special Forces Qualification course. 
and he was rucking a lot. So it's basically putting weight in backpack and moving with it. And this is just at the foundation of like Green Beret training. This is what they do more than anything. And that he got really good at it. He would run with me a lot. He would, you know, end up coming to the running camps I do in the Appalachian Mountains with some of my, the, the girls I coached and tag along when we were together. Running wasn't really his, his favorite. So when he got to there, he rocked and he, he actually did really well in, in that area. So something that I learned through him, but I wasn't quite into it then. You know, I did it a little bit with him, but it was more just still like hiking to me. So that's, that's what rucking is. Go Rock actually is, you know, at its basic level, it's taking what Jason learned in the military and bringing it to a wider audience. The only people knew about rucking was were people in the military. And then, you know, it's also a, a rugby term, but that's that I don't, I don't even know what that means. But what Go Ruck did is it it basically started making rucking a thing where you didn't have to be in the military to do it. You didn't have to do it with the weight that the military does it. I mean, the military likes to make everything miserable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if any, if you can turn a scuba diving trip in Key West into misery, then nothing's fun in the military, you know, skydiving terrible in the military I hear. So rocking in the military is usually like something like 80, 90, you know, with all your uniform on and, and you're carrying your weapon, your ammo and your batteries for the comms equipment, whatever, you know, food, rations, you know, it can get more than a hundred pounds and then you got to jump out of an airplane. That's not fun. So you hear a lot of vets say, I won't ever ruck again. It ruined my back. It did all this. So we, we have to kind of start them over again and say, no, no, no. This is like fun. <laughs> this is 20 pounds. This is 30 pounds if you're, you know, a bigger person. And you're just walking around with it. Jason's really gotten into the science behind it and talked to a ton of experts on why this is good for your body, why this is a good fitness activity, you know, burns three times the calories as walking. It can prove, you know, helps you have good posture. It gives you an alternative to something like running where there's a lot of strike force on your joints. And frankly, you know, there's just a lot of people out there, not me, but there's a lot of people that have always hated running. And I find that the older I get, I can't find my group of, you know, girls to go running with, you know, it's this, if I did, it's like the, the cross country team that's across town that I just don't have time, you know, between my three kids and a job, I had to make, you know, a choice. So I could have started a run club, I guess, but, you know, being part of Go Ruck, I said, you know what, I'm going to start a, a ruck club because every time I ask someone to go to, for a run with me, they say no, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, within my neighborhood. But when I ask them to go for a ruck with me, they say yes. And then they feel like they can bring their kids or their dog or it's different. It's it's surprising to me. It, you know, as a runner, it, it hurts a little, <laughs> you know, even for me now, now that I don't run as much, it's a lot easier to just pick up that rock and go for a few miles on the beach, on the roads or whatever, and, and get that workout in and be outside. I can do it while on a, a work call. You know, I can listen to a podcast. When I run, I don't like anything. I don't like to listen to anything. It's just kind of, I've been conditioned over the years of running by myself and even running in a group wanting to have conversation or, you know, running in wooded areas where it's just unsafe to block out the senses. I, I could talk for a long time about this because I think it's really important as anyone, but especially as a female runner to be careful about these sort of things. And, but with rucking, again, I would take them out if I were going in an isolated area, but I'm usually on the roads or the beach and I am not moving, you know, I'm a little bit more aware of my senses and I'm, it's just a different, you know, you're not kind of getting into that zone of running where you're thinking about things and just tuning out a little bit with rucking. I can, I can do other things. Your profile's different too. You know, I've got this backpack on, you know, I even have my like mace if I need it, <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to get picked on that way. When you're running around as a girl, like, you got your headphones in, you go down secluded area, like it's bad news, right? You've heard the, the stories. I mean, I'm not fear mongering. I, I, I've definitely run in a lot of areas where I'm like, hmm, I need to get out of there here quickly. So I believe it's worth, worth the risk, but I, I encourage people to really take out those earbuds and um, unless you're running on the streets and there's lots of people around, but you got to be really careful. So yeah, so Go Rock has been something that we've been doing for the last decade plus. Like I said at the beginning, we came up with this idea when we were when I was in West Africa, kind of thinking about what Jason was going to do next. 
to kind of follow my career. That didn't work out exactly the way we planned it, but Go Ruck has lived on. Over the years, we've we've done more types of rucking events, like a 5K rucking event to a 48-hour super intense endurance event, you know, and everything in between. The commonality is all about, you know, there's always a backpack with weight involved to, to make it all about rucking. But the, sort of the lessons that he and I learned, you know, in our 20s and 30s, they, we, we continue to apply them and we continue to learn through uh, the other people that we meet along the way for Go Ruck and other people that are doing great things. And it's, we think it's really important to, to get outside and do real things with real people. So how do people get involved with Go Ruck? Because I know it's beyond just the Jacksonville area. So if someone was listening and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, this sounds interesting to me, I want to check it out. How would they do that? We have a great website. At GoRuck.com, you'll, you'll see that there's a lot of ways to get involved. Find a Ruck Club. Just put in your zip code and find if there's a Ruck Club near you and just show up. You don't even have to have a special backpack. You can just bring whatever you have and seeing people show up with, you know, water bottles as weight, a ba- sacks of flour, you know, anything. I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, you'd make do. It's not a barrier to entry. You know, so there's finding a Ruck Club. We even have people that get really, you know, energized and say, there's no Ruck Club around me. I want to start one. So, you know, that's another thing you can do. But there's also events that are led by our cadre, which are special operations combat veterans. People like Jason, they come back and they kind of basically give you an experience that's team building in nature, where you often are going through an urban environment and they're making you do, you know, some rucking exercises and team building sort of exercises and PT along the way and some movements. It's really cool because it's like you get a tour, a very intimate tour of the city, especially if you do the overnight one, like 2 a.m. <laughs> that was the signature one. There's a lot of ways to, to do this. So we even have, you can ruck certain road races now. Instead of just, you know, running or walking, you can ruck it. We we recently did um, a local race here. It was a half marathon. The Go Ruck headquarters did it, raise awareness and fundraise for uh, one of our employees' wives who was just recently diagnosed with breast cancer because it was a breast cancer themed race. You can see their community is really active. We have a lot of people that are former and current service members, spouses, kids who kind of grew up wondering what it was like to kind of be in the military. And so you get sort of a feel for it that that way. There's also a lot of police officers and firefighters and all sorts of EMTs. I mean, we really have a, a wide following of folks that are community helpers and teachers as well. What I love about our events and, and our community is that it's kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning. It's really one of the few places you can go to today and have it really be kind of a cross section of society. You're, you're really getting intimate and personal, getting time with people that you may not normally interact with. And you're really getting to know that person behind the Facebook profile. <laughs> and I think there's something to that. And I think that's a lot of what you're, you know, when you're encouraging people to get outdoors, it's, it's like it's connecting with something real and not something that is just a, a sliver of, of reality. Yeah, something that comes up on this show fairly frequently and, and in my life has been true also is the relationships you build with people doing these sorts of activities is very different and, t- and t- to a certain degree deeper and stronger than the relationships you build with people and a lot of other sorts of non-active activities that you participate in life because so much of your other interactions are are not necessarily superficial but they have a different goal there's there's like a lot of those interactions have a purpose outside of the relationship and to a certain degree like outdoor activities rucking these sorts of things do as well but they they get you to work together in a way they get you to encourage each other in a way and I just find that the relationships people build are more meaningful in a lot of ways. Do you find that that has been true for a GORUCK? And then what is the feedback that you're getting from members and people that come and join? Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, with our signature events where you're spending 6, 10, 12, 48, you know, 24 hours with people. People tell me, I do these events one to become a better leader for myself, to find out where my weaknesses are. Also, a huge point is what you just spoke about, is that 
I've met so many people that I wouldn't necessarily have come across in my life. And I found out that I have a lot in common with them, even if on the surface, it doesn't seem as such. The bond that you create, we're creating this bond, this crucible moment, right? It's not real. We're not really at war. We're not really like going through a hurricane disaster scenario, but we're, we're finding out what we're made of when we practice it. I just like to relate this back to parenting. It's like, what's the purpose of parenting? It's to expose your kids to a lot in a kind of safe place, like a laboratory. So when they get tested in real life, they can fall back on that. And this is what the military does. This is even what, you know, my training did. You know, it's like you have to put yourself through these hard moments and, and see where am I breaking down or where, where do I excel and when do I need to ask for help, you know? And this is, you know, if you and I were doing an event overnight, we would basically find out like, wow, Emily, you can't lift very heavy stuff, <laughs> <laughs> but you can go a long ways and you have a really great attitude that keeps everyone's spirits up. When I know that I couldn't carry it any longer, I could count on you. Now you and I have an appreciation for each other that is beyond just the niceties or the courtesies of, of life, you know? and. Social media is can be a tool to continue to enhance those and to stay in touch and all those positive things we talk about it, but it can't replace, you know, like you said, the real, this person in front of me is acting, I can see how beat down and tired they are, but they're willing to help me right now. And I'm not going to forget what that. You're, what you're speaking to is kind of how a lot of times what happens when people kind of open themselves up to something like this is they learn their strengths and other people's strengths, but they also learn that their weaknesses are okay and that other people are willing to help them with their weaknesses, where I think we, as a society, try to hide our weaknesses because we fear that people will dislike us for them, that we'll feel bad about ourselves. And what we end up learning is, no, those weaknesses are okay. Maybe instead of being mocked for them, people are going to help us deal with them and maybe even try to turn those weaknesses into a strength. Who has it all figured out? Who, who can do everything, right. right? Who can lift heavy and have endurance and have a great attitude? And I mean, nobody's like this. That's why the fabric of society works is because we depend on everyone to come to the table with their different skill set. You know, when I'm with my kids and one of them is just acting out and there's nothing I can do to make them happy, but that other friend or that mom, they can come in and they can fill that void for them. They can make them laugh. They can, you know, make them feel better. They can give them a hug that comforts them. We don't change that much, you know? We're still beings that it's not a one size fits all. Even in relationships, it's like sometimes, you know, I need to just go talk to a girlfriend that's gonna understand my point of view, make me feel better about that sort of thing, you know? And it's it's like this in every aspect of what we do. We, we really need to connect with people in a real way that fills those voids and not to feel inadequate because we aren't able to fill those ourselves. We're not supposed to be able to do that. We're supposed to be able to do what we do really well, get by on the things that we don't do well, but to ask for help. You know, I've been reading this really interesting article. It's by David Brooks about how the nuclear family is basically a failure. It survived in a very short span of time and it was almost artificial, like it was almost propped up. Years of humans being together has always been an extended, extended family sort of uh, style. It's not great for personal freedom. It's not great for privacy, <laughs> but it's, it's really great if, you know, you're not getting along with your dad, but you have this other father figure who you can relate to. And when you're going through your teen years or something like that, or, you know, having a bad day, but this person can help you out because they are really good in math. And they, they can kind of help you see, and they're not going to make you feel inadequate. And you're not just going to hide your inadequacies and continue to go down a hole. Not to get too far off the track, but I, I get really annoyed with sometimes privacy talks to a certain level. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not being fanatical here, but on some level, I think we have to be able to, I mean, this is a larger discussion, but we talk about trying to keep our lives so private that we're not going to reach out. You don't see these in these other countries. You know, this idea that you get old and you just go to a nursing home and that's just the way it is. That doesn't happen in other country, a lot of other countries. Why? Because one, it's not 
financially sustainable. And two, they're like, no, you stay with us. And now we take care of you. You took care of us when we were a baby, you know, sort of thing. So I think there's a lot to be said about having your extended family not even be blood related, you know, and finding these support networks within your neighbors. If I need something, I want to be able to know my neighbor's names and go to them and say, I really need your help. Right? We find this where we live when there's hurricanes. People get out in the street, they talk to each other, they loan equipment, they, they you know, swap numbers, they share plans. There's this community thing that's really, the disaster's not fun, you know, but that part is really kind of beautiful. And I think you, you miss it if you're staying in your own lane all the time. Yeah, and I think one of the important things about communities, and you've spoken to it as well, is just getting to know other people, getting to know people that are different from you, getting to see how people are really inherently alike when it comes down to it, and then just learning to appreciate yeah. each other and work together and how that's more valuable than trying to be a hermit or trying to keep yourself separate from everything else and just assuming the worst about others. Yeah. So what I think would be great to do now, because I'm sure somebody listening is interested in GORUCK, so let's tell them where they go <laughs> online to find out more about GORUCK, but also if you want to share any of your personal blog or Instagram or anything like that and people wanted oh, to yeah. keep up with you, how they would do that also. Oh, well, thanks. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here and talk with you. It's, you know, even though it's through our computer it's still <laughs> it's still nice to have a conversation you know with someone so yeah so go rock is is goruck.com and we have like a really rich and and there's going to be a lot more content coming out on our on our news blog there and we do all sorts of things it's sometimes it's community oriented it's it's about rucking it's you know i did one about my son and they're, they're all kind of relate to rucking somehow but there's just a lot of really great stories on there and and you know trips you know kind of something we didn't really talk about too much but something that jason and i always try to do when we go on a trip we always try to create like some sort of physical crucible in it so it's like we have something to look forward to and train for and then we're outside you know hiking some trail or you know a mountain and it's just really great because you get to experience that and then on the after you've done it you get to kind of relish the victory of getting that done and the accomplishment so that's something that we we write about and you know kind of how to pack for those trips as well you'll see a lot of me on on the blog but I also, you know, in addition to the GORUCK kind of Instagram account, I have my own. It's imminently. You can follow me there. It's a lot of GORUCK stuff, but also a lot of my family as well. All right. And the way that I always like to end the show is to ask if there's a final thought you want to leave the audience with based on the things we talked about today. I really think it's, it's important to kind of keep seeking. Do more of what you love, and it will lead you into a place where you can meet new people, get new ideas. And I mean, I'm, I'm an ideal collector at heart. I see something and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. That's a great idea. Like with this ruck we went on that was a birthday party, I'm, I've got this thing in my head about like more birthday rucks. Like what I said before, it's, a, it's really about making those real connections and doing them outside uh, in a way that really grounds us. There is no substitute really, you know? I mean, if you if you need to go outside on your own, that's what you've got to do. But if you can do it with your dog or your friend or significant other, your kid, makes it even that much more special. Well, I think that's a great note to leave people with. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, I'm happy to be on here. As a solution to help keep people active after the COVID-19 outbreak, GORUCK has made their Star Course hit list public online, and there's an option for you to create your own rucking route closer to home. So there are over 500 hit lists that currently exist in U.S. cities and beyond. And if you are interested in participating in one of those hit lists, you can find the link at our website, gogetoutside.com, or you can look for this episode 102 with Emily McCarthy. You're going to find photographs of her in action, a link to that hit list that I mentioned, and a link to the other things that we talked about in today's show. 
And should you want to get in touch with us at this show, you can do that a number of ways. You can send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or you can leave us a voice message or send us a text at 818-925-0106. And typically, I ask you all to go to your podcast purveyor of choice and subscribe, rate, and review the show and share it and all of that. And I do still hope that you will do that. But what I really want to implore you to do now is just stop and care about other people and try to become a solution to the problems of the world and not someone who further feeds them. That's my request to everybody after this episode. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help was provided by Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show, come back June 16th for Sean Camp. He is a thru-hiker, and we are going to have our most in-depth discussions yet that we've had on this podcast about doing long-distance trails like the AT and the CDT. Take care of each other out there and come back in two weeks for Sean Camp. See you then.